Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. In the year 1505, Renaissance painter Raphael, a.k.a. the Red Ninja Turtle, (laughs) painted one of his most famous works depicting Mary and baby Jesus. Here's what it looks like. Mary and baby Jesus. There she is. Now, I'm no art expert, but something immediately strikes me as way off about this painting. Does anyone else see it? What's wrong with this picture? She's white. JC is white, too. In fact, baby Jesus, like, he even has red hair, I think. He he looks almost exactly like my five-month-old son, Major, honestly. (laughs) Like, that could be Amy and and Major, seriously. (laughs) Why is this an issue? Why does it matter that baby Jesus looks like I could have been his dad? Well, was Jesus white? No. No. Were his parents? Uh No. They were brown. (laughs) They were Middle Eastern Jewish family, and they were brown. So why did Raphael make them white? And why do... Roughly 99% of our Western images make him white. You know, I think it usually begins fairly innocently. I'm going to try to give people, including the Red Ninja Turtle, the benefit of the doubt here. The gospel, right, that is the good news of God's love for us, is so incredible, it's so all-encompassing that humans have a tendency to personalize it. Right? We, want, we want to take it in. We want to make it ours. Jesus connects with us on such a deep personal level. We can't help but picture him looking like we look. But this sometimes innocent beginning quickly becomes very dangerous. Because instead of remembering that we are made in the image of God, we begin to make God in the image of us. Let me say that again. We forget so often that we are made in God's image, and we start making God in ours. This is dangerous because of how quickly it begins to permeate every part of our life and faith. You see, my image of God likes the things I like, doesn't like the things that I don't like. My image of God gets mad at the same people that I get mad at. My image of God enjoys the same worship music and the same preaching style that I do. My image of God votes the way I do, acts the way I do, and thinks the way I do. Many times, our image of God is just a direct result of the things that we've seen and experienced and what we believe to be true about the world. Simply put, our image of God is a projection of our worldview. And I was listening to NPR a few weeks ago, and I heard a study about worldview and truth and when they collide with each other. This study was looking at what happens when someone is presented with facts that directly oppose their worldview. And this study showed that 93% of people 
will choose to ignore those facts even when presented with indisputable evidence rather than change their worldview. Isn't that incredible? 93% of people will totally ignore indisputable facts rather than change their worldview. And we do this in the church, don't we? Even when the true character of God is revealed to us, we hold tightly to the image we've made of him instead. Don't believe me? Think about the large portions of American Christianity that have been hijacked by those that wish to divide the family of God or exclude people from it entirely. We have traditionally splintered over the role of women in the church, the type of worship music we prefer, what kinds of gifts the Holy Spirit gives, and countless other issues. I've said in more than one church service in my life and heard the pastor say, I don't see how you can be a Christian and be a Democrat. Entire denominations were formed in order to preserve American slavery. Even as we speak, some of the largest denominations in the world are separating over the inclusion of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Here's the 10-second version of how this works, okay? Ready? We take our image of God, usually manufactured from our own mirror, and we form churches filled with people who share that image and exclude those who do not. And while sitting inside this thing that is really more of an echo chamber than a church, we sit in judgment of the people who dare to call themselves Christians while not looking, thinking, and acting just like us. That's what happens when we make God in our image. One of the craziest parts about all of this is that it's not new. This isn't a 21st century Western phenomenon. It's been happening since the very early days of the church. In fact, it became such an issue that biblical authors address it many different times throughout the New Testament. For the last few weeks, we've been in a series on the book of Ephesians. And like we've said many times over the last month, this really isn't a book, it's actually a letter. It's a letter written by a pastor named Paul to a group of churches that he helped start in and around the city of Ephesus. And Paul spills almost half of his ink in this letter addressing diversity and unity in the church and how you can't really desire to obtain to the mature fullness of God unless you have both of those things present, diversity and unity. Paul was passionate about this. And I'll tell you just how passionate it was in just a second. Mark Jordan last week led us through the end of chapter 2 where Paul explains how the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles has been knocked down by Jesus. Now just a reminder, Gentile is a term for anyone who is not Jewish. So when Paul says the dividing wall between the Jews and Gentiles has been knocked down, that means the wall between all people has been knocked down. There is no longer division between us. We're going to pick up the letter at the beginning of chapter 3. So I'd love for you to open up your Bibles or scroll on your phone to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 1. The scriptures will also be on the screen if you want to look at it with me. Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then there's a dash. Okay? This is one of the most interesting verses I think in, in the entire Bible because it's an incomplete thought. Paul starts to say something and then he stops. He thinks of something else. And there's a dash put there to help us see that Paul is about to say one thing and he decided to say something else instead. So let me show you what I mean. Look at when we pair verse 1 with verse 13. 
For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, and he talks for 12 verses, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. So as Paul moves into chapter 3, he's about to offer a prayer for the church that he's been talking to when he stops abruptly. Now, he picks this prayer back up in verse 13. He says, this reason I kneel before the Father. But between verse 1 and verse 13, those 12 verses, he spends talking about something else entirely. But I have become convinced it's not something unimportant or peripheral to the conversation. In fact, it's something absolutely central and vital, not only to the message in this letter of Ephesians, but to the message of the entire gospel. Paul is essentially pausing to remind everyone why. Why he's in prison, why he's writing to them, why he helped start their church and all the other churches in the region, why they gather as a church at all, and most importantly, why all of this matters so much. For the rest of our time together this morning, we're going to look at the why behind the Christian life. And I promise you, if you really dig into this with me, you will be forever changed by the beauty and simplicity of God's why. You ready? Give me a nod. Okay, back to verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So this is the triggering statement for Paul, so I want to unpack it a second for us. It reminds him that there may be people in his audience reading or hearing this letter that didn't realize Paul was in prison at all. And probably definitely didn't know why he was in prison. I think the same is probably true for most of us. You may remember that, oh yeah, Paul, I've heard this before. He was in prison when he wrote this letter. But most of us don't really know why he was in prison, at least off the top of our heads. But Paul says that he's in prison, quote, for the sake of you Gentiles. So how did he get there? Well, to answer that question, we need to look back at the New Testament book of Acts. Now, Acts is short. It's a short name for Acts of the Apostles. And it's a historical book that tells the story of the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. And almost two-thirds of this book of Acts, the last two-thirds, tells the story of Paul and him traveling all around the Near East to start churches, to start ministries, and to share the good news of Jesus with people. So after about 20 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead, Paul spends about three years during this travel in and around the city of Ephesus. Ephesians, Ephesus, that's who this is too. And he plants churches in the city and kind of all around it. We talked a lot about this in week one of this series, if you want to go back and hear more of the history behind that. Well, shortly after he leaves Ephesus, he's traveling around a neighboring community sharing about Jesus when he feels this call this call to return to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is kind of like the early church headquarters. It's where most of the church leaders are, and it's where the whole Jesus movement thing first began. So Paul sends for the church leaders from Ephesus. He just spent three years with them, and he wants to tell them his plan, what he's doing, and he wants to tell them goodbye. We pick it up in Acts chapter 20. And now, Paul says, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying about the good news of God's grace. Now I know, he's talking, remember, to the Ephesian elders here. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. This is a heavy statement from Paul. In fact, just a couple of verses later, it says that they all gathered around him to lay hands on him and pray and that they wept 
because they remembered his statement that they would never see him again. He feels called to go back to Jerusalem, but he's pretty sure that it's not going to go well. So with tears in his eyes, he finishes the prayer with the Ephesian elders, and he sets off on a ship toward Jerusalem. But when he arrives, things actually begin surprisingly well, Acts 21. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, that's the brother of Jesus, and all the elders that were present. Those were the leaders of the first church. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they, what? Praised God. They were excited. Paul was worried, right, that he was going to go and he was going to tell them about all the things he was doing. He was a little worried they were going to freak out, but this is a good response. They praise God. But their praise immediately changes into something different, a, a warning to Paul. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Remember that phrase, they're zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. That is not to obey or abide by the Old Testament law, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So Paul, during his travels, as he's starting these churches, he's sharing the good news of Jesus, he has been separating the Jewish law from the good news of Jesus, right? And this was life-giving. It was freeing, not just for Gentiles, but for, for Jews as well who felt in bondage to this law. But these Jews in Jerusalem were not excited about it. They were really struggling with it because they were, remember, zealous for the law. If you're confused about what this law thing is and why it mattered so much, here's a quick refresher. Hey, the Jewish law is found in the first five books of the Bible. It's 613 different rules and regulations, do's and don'ts for the people of Israel. They were meant to make Israel a nation of love and mercy and generosity to all the other nations around them so that the whole world would come to know and experience the love of God through them. Now, there were also parts of this law that meant to distinguish the nation of Israel from other nations around it. Again, it was supposed to set them apart so that people would look and say there's something different about them. But these are the customs that the church leaders mentioned to Paul here. They're ceremonial or symbolic laws around things like diet and clothing and cleanliness and how to worship in the temple and various things like that. But because, like everyone else, Israel was filled with broken people, most of ancient Israel ended up basically just ignoring all of the parts of the law meant to show the world love and mercy and instead embraced all the ceremonial parts as a means to make themselves superior to the other nations around them. See what happened? They kind of ignored the ones that were like, hey, be generous with people. Hey, be kind to people. Be merciful to people. Instead, they held on really tightly to the ceremonial ones, the cleanliness ones, the clothing ones, the dietary ones, so that they could hold themselves up as superior to the world around them probably goes without saying that God's not really happy about this turn of events. The people of Israel, the ones he has chosen to share his love with the whole world, have completely missed the point, and they've made it all about themselves. And let me say that again, and I want you to let it sink in, because here's the thing. Their story is our story, too. The people God tasked to share his love with the whole world completely missed the point and made it all about themselves. That sound familiar? 
This is what they did in the Old Testament. It's what we still do today. And it's what they were doing in Jerusalem during the time of Paul. You see, Paul was teaching people everywhere that Jesus had fulfilled the Jewish law, that they were neither bound to it anymore nor they had to abide by it anymore. This was both Jews and Gentiles. They were simply tasked with receiving the love of God and sharing it with the world around them. This was a beautiful and freeing message for both Gentiles and Jews alike, but like I said, some of the Jewish people, especially in Jerusalem, kind of the capital, the headquarters, were having a really hard time. They had so much pride and identity wrapped up in their rituals and their rules, and they wanted to make sure that everyone became like them before they could become a Christian. Did you catch that again? Because once again, their story is our story. They wanted people to become just like them before they could become a Christian. They wanted people to not only place their faith in Jesus, but they wanted them to think and act and look just like them. Paul knew this was contradictory to the good news of Jesus. He knew that Jesus came to bring unity and diversity, not uniformity. And that's the message that he's been preaching. These early church leaders in Jerusalem are excited, right, that his message is working. They, they hear about all that God's done in the midst of the Gentiles, and they praise God. But they're a little uncomfortable with the method that Paul is using to get these results. They also worry about these Jewish Christians who are, quote, zealous for the law. They're worried about what they will think or what they will do. So this is what they say to Paul in Acts 21, 23. What shall we do then? They, those who are jealous for the law, zealous for the law, will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you to do. And they go on to basically tell Paul that he really loves the law. Act like you really are all about this law during your time here in Jerusalem. And he does his best to comply. He really does. He goes to a few Jewish purification ceremonies. He spends some time in the Jewish temple, but it isn't good enough. And this happens in verse 27. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd, seizing him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place, that is the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. So the Romans, who are in charge in, in, in this whole region, including the city of Jerusalem at the time, they hear what's happening to Paul, and they send the soldiers over, and they arrest him, and they put him in prison. And it's from this prison cell that Paul writes, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul is reminding them of the why behind all of this. He's in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. He's in prison because of his commitment to the truth that God's family includes all kinds of people from all kinds of places, backgrounds, and lifestyles. Paul is in prison because religious people couldn't stand the fact that he was encouraging those who were different from them to be a part of God's family too. 
Isn't that incredible? Some people say that the Bible is irrelevant in our world today. I cannot think of many things more relevant that the church needs to hear today than this story about how religious people were so upset that Paul was encouraging some people who were different from them to be a part of God's family that they tried to kill him. Paul, quite possibly the most influential Christian to ever live, went to prison and eventually died because religious people wanted everyone to look and act and think just like them before they were allowed to be Christians. This is what causes Paul to stop so abruptly after verse one. He's about to make sure his readers know absolutely for certain why this matters so much. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed this mystery to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. Paul says that he has been tasked with sharing about the grace of God with all people, not just with the Jews, in fact, not even primarily with the Jews. He's been tasked with expanding the grace of God to all people in all places for all time. He calls this grace of God a mystery. Now, mystery in our language and culture, it usually refers to something like obscure, something that we can't figure out, something that's inexplicable. When I hear the word mystery, I think of these books that I used to read as a kid called Encyclopedia Brown. Did anybody ever read Encyclopedia Brown? Oh my gosh, yes, thank you. I was worried that no one else would have ever read Encyclopedia Brown. They were about this little kid named Encyclopedia Brown, and Encyclopedia sounds like a rough nickname until you realize that his first name is Leroy, and you understand why he's cool being called Encyclopedia all the time. No offense to anyone here named Leroy, (laughs) sorry. So Encyclopedia is this really smart kid, and he solves all these mysteries, and the cool but often frustrating part about these books is that Encyclopedia or his friend Salary would solve the mystery at the end of the chapter without ever explaining how they solved it. The hope was that you could figure it out too, but if you couldn't, there was this part in the back called answers, and you had to go to the back, find the chapter you were reading, and find how they figured it out, the clues that I missed and how they figured out the mystery. As a little kid, all I wanted was to be able to figure out the mystery without having to turn to the back of the book, but I almost never, ever could. This is what I think of when I hear the word mystery, right? It's a, it's a puzzle that's almost impossible to figure out. But the Bible's language and culture is different. The word mystery refers to something that was completely unknown, but now has been made known. Information that no one knew, but that now everyone can know. And this mystery that Paul talks about is said to be God's mystery. It was something that people didn't know about God previously, but now God has revealed to all humanity. So Paul mentions this mystery, and then he says, I've already talked about it a little bit in the first part of this letter, but let me be more direct. Let me tell you exactly what this mystery is. And he tells in verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It's difficult for us, 2,000 years separated from the context and culture of this, to understand the weight and magnitude of this statement Paul just made. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
Remember, Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. He's saying that all are welcome in the family of God. The easiest way to explain this is actually by looking at the grammar that Paul uses. He uses the same prefix for each of the three items in this list in verse 6. So the most literal translation is, this mystery is that the Gentiles are co-heirs, co-members, and co-partakers. So let's just walk through these briefly. They are co-heirs in that they receive the same promises that God has given to everyone else in his family. No exceptions, no exclusions. They are co-members in that they are not just a part of God's family, they are, but they're also an indispensable part of God's family. They have gifts and, and characteristics that God wants and needs to use in his church. He's saying now, without the Gentiles, without the rest of these people who are so different from you, the church cannot function in the way that I want it to. They are co-members of the same body. Lastly, they are co-partakers, meaning that they have been given every spiritual blessing that God gives to all of his children. Put it all together. Paul is saying anyone and everyone who embraces the good news of Jesus is a part of God's family. No restrictions, no exceptions. This is the message of the gospel. Plain and simple. Paul goes on to explain that it's his job. God has given him the job of sharing the gospel, this message, with the world around him. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am least than the le- less than the least of all the Lord's people. So pause. Paul says I'm, I'm less than the least of all God's people because he was literally murdering Christians before he became a Christian. I don't know if you know that about Paul. He used to be called Saul. He was this terrible guy. He was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. He's saying this isn't false humility. Okay, Paul is saying, I'm, I'm less than the least. If, if God can use me on this mission, he can use anyone on this mission. If I can be a part of God's family, anyone can be a part of God's family. Although I am the less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan for which ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Here's that same idea, right, of of mystery. It was previously hidden in God, but now it's been revealed through God in Jesus Christ. God's purpose in all this was to use the church. Hey, don't, don't miss that part. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul comes to the application portion of this part of his letter. Anyone who has been given the gospel has also been given the responsibility to share it with others. Paul is saying there should be no such thing as someone who knows the good news of Jesus and doesn't share the good news of Jesus or selectively shares the good news of Jesus. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ for all people, right? I mean, come on, like this this is what the the angel said when they appeared to the shepherd and they announced the birth of Jesus. Do you remember that story? Right, the shepherds are out in their fields and, and context, the shepherds are nobodies. Like they would have been the last people, if we were making a big announcement, they would have been the last people that we would have started with to share the good news of this great announcement. But that's where God starts. He sends the angels to these shepherds and they, they freak out because there's this huge light. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy for what? All people. I bring you good news of great joy for all people. We have no problem singing about it at Christmas 
but we so often can't bring ourselves to actually live this out. And it's not like this is some insignificant part of the Christian life, y'all. This is the why behind everything. This is God's plan for sharing his love with humanity. It's why. It's the why. We, the church, have been tasked with making the gospel known to all people, to the whole world. If we aren't impartially showing the love of Jesus to people around us, and I'm not just talking about words, y'all. I'm talking about with, with actions, with, with loving people who are in need, with, with serving people who are struggling, with clothing the poor, with giving food to the sick, with welcoming the stranger, with serving our neighbors. If we aren't showing the love of Jesus to people, no matter who they are or what they've done, I honestly don't know what we're doing. I don't know why we're here. Whatever it is, it's not Christian. We should probably start calling it something different. Jesus didn't just die for people who look like us, talk like us, and vote like us, and act like us, and believe like us. He came to offer life and freedom to the whole world. Remember that Raphael painting that I showed you at the beginning? There's this church in a little town called Nazareth called Church of the Annunciation. Here's a picture of it. They had this incredible idea where they decided to take this painting and help it more accurately reflect the diversity of God's family. Now, you may recognize the town of Nazareth because it's where Jesus was from. It's also where Mary was first visited by the angel Gabriel when he announced that she would give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world, and that she was supposed to call him Jesus. This Church of the Annunciation is built to commemorate that announcement. That's why it's called the Church of the Annunciation. While this church was being constructed, the leaders of it commissioned Christian artists from all over the world to paint Raphael's Mary and Jesus, but using their own country's culture and traditions and attire. The result was like just magnificent. I want you to take a look at these. That's Andorra, Bolivia, it's Japan, Chile. China, Colombia, Croatia. That's my favorite. It's got like a sci-fi feel to it, you know. Ecuador, Greece, Italy. That's Japan, Korea, Malta, the Philippines. Poland, Romania, Scotland, Singapore, Slovenia, Spain, Thailand. Isn't that incredible? When you look through these pictures, you can't help but be struck by the fact that our experience of Jesus is so narrow. Christianity isn't an American or even a Western religion. It's so much bigger than our experience of it. Christianity is the most diverse and inclusive faith in the history of the world. Those are sociological facts. It is the most diverse and inclusive faith in the history of the world. People of all different tribes, tongues, nations, and colors. 
people of every sexual orientation and identity, people of every class and lifestyle and background, people of different and diverse in every imaginable way, and yet united around Jesus. How is that possible? Because God is not made in our image. We are made in his. And when I say we, I mean all of us. Think about it like this. Every person who has ever lived or will ever live bears the same image of God that you do. Flawed, yes. Imperfect, yes. But no more so or less so than anyone else. It's way past time we stop making God in our image and start impartially showing his love to the whole world. I think that if Paul could see the hate and the division that exist in the church today, he would have wept in his prison cell. Christianity is the most diverse and inclusive faith in the history of the world because people like Paul spent their lives fighting to eradicate racism and sexism and bigotry in the early church. He went to jail for it. And y'all, do you remember who put him there? Church leaders, religious people. Paul went to prison because Christians didn't want people who looked and looked and acted and thought, that was a good one, looked. Paul went to prison because Christians did not want people who were different from them to be a part of the church. Just sit with that for a second. They, they tried to kill him. They, beat, they tore him out of the temple. They beat him up in the streets. They would have killed him if the Romans hadn't intervened. All because he was allowing people who were different from them to be a part of the church. Paul knew that that viewpoint was not only bigoted. He, he knew that it was in opposition to everything that Jesus taught and demonstrated. Paul was so passionate about making the good news of Jesus available to anyone and everyone that he eventually died for it. But before he did, he made sure that every church and Christian he encountered knew that they had been given the very same mission from God. See, this is our mission too. We are responsible to share the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone, to speak out against those who seek to exclude and divide I'm so tired of Christians assuming that they get to decide who belongs in God's family and who doesn't. I'm so tired of it. Way too often the church has built these big walls to divide and to keep people out who look different from us instead of these long tables to welcome people in. That's the opposite of what Jesus did. It's the opposite of what Paul lived and died for. This morning, we're going to demonstrate this truth by sharing in communion around big tables. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from, or what you've been told, you have a place at God's table if you would like one. If you're here this morning and you're not ready, uh, you, you don't want to participate in this. Please don't feel pressured to share in the communion time this morning. You have complete freedom to stay in your seat. I promise there will be no judgment from anyone. But if you desire a seat at God's table, 
there is a place for you. If you desire a seat at God's table, there is a place for you. Before we do this, before we get up and go and stand around the tables, I want to address a group of people that I know are listening to this right now, both in the room and online. If you have ever been told that you aren't welcome in God's family because of something about you, number one, I want you to know that it was a lie. God and his word are consistently clear. Anyone who wants to be in God's family is welcome. Number two, you were probably told that you aren't welcome in a way that deeply wounded you. I know that when I was told that, it was one of the hardest things. I, it took me years to move past it. If that's true, I just want to say that I'm sorry. It, it makes me so sad. It makes me so angry that that happened to you. I know it would have made Paul angry, and I know it makes God angry, because I cannot think of many things that God hates more than telling someone he loves that he doesn't love them. And I know that you're probably still hurt, and I know that it's probably a miracle that you're sitting here or you're listening at all, but I'm here to tell you that there's nothing like the true family of God, the radically inclusive, diverse, and beautiful family of God united around the love of Christ. There's nothing like it. And if you're ready to step into God's family, simply say so. Place your faith in Jesus and say so. This is the good news, the, the, the mystery revealed that Paul keeps talking about. Membership in God's family isn't based on who you are or what you've done or where you're from. It's based on faith in Jesus. Come and take your place at his table. Pastor and author Beth Moore says it like this, and I, I just love this quote. One day, all of us in Christ will sit around an enormous table exquisitely set with a feast of rich foods prepared in divine kitchens. No one will be left out. No one will be alone. No one will be nameless. No one unknown. No one with nowhere to go. We will finally be 